This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, author and clinical psychologist Dan Siegel is joined in conversation by Rick Hansen, author of Buddha's Brain. The conversation, which explores the mind from the perspective of interpersonal neurobiology, was recorded on September 17, 2016, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Well, we're very happy to be here, and I'm particularly happy to be here with my friend and benefactor, um, Dan Siegel, and very happy to be here with you all, even though we can't see you very well, but we'll try to do that. Thanks for braving the San Francisco traffic to get here. We started a little late. We might end a little late, but, we, but we'll be pretty close to on time. Okay. Yes. I Let's feel the same way, Rick, about being here with you. That's great. Yeah. Dan and I have had a hug fest in the back there. Yeah. Could you hear us hugging? <laughs> we were kind of talking about, at least for myself, when I was such a dork in high school, I never dreamed I'd be here in this situation with someone like Dan. Mm-hmm. So, and I said I didn't dream that I'd be with someone like you, so this is, this is all good. Okay. We will disagree with each yeah. other eventually, Soon. otherwise but we'll be start so with the toast. Okay, great. Here's having a good time. That's good. <laughs> Cheers. We're here to discuss Dan's truly remarkable book, and um, I really feel that way. It's easy to sort of say nice things about other people. I grew up in LA, so you know, like if you have 100 best friends, you really have no friends at all, anyway. Mm-hmm. So, but I really do love this book, and I highly encourage you to get it, because uh, among other reasons, deep down, Dan is a closeted mystic, and he may not be so closeted after tonight. <laughs> we'll see. Okay, so this is a deep topic. Mind, what is mind? Why should we care? What are the uses of this? Um, and so forth. We're going to explore um, what it is and, and why Dan's take on it is actually really profound and in some ways revolutionary as a way of thinking about ourselves and other people. It has a lot of implications at a very concrete level for individuals, relationships, families, as well as scaled up to our country at large and even the whole planet. We're gonna move fairly quickly through some of the more philosophical abstract stuff because uh, for me as a longtime therapist, uh, methods guy, I know Dan, you two are very engaged in practical help to people, we want to carve out time to get into some of the practical implications or takeaways in a variety of ways. So one of the things just before we dive in is uh, I was very struck by in your first chapter, you talked about uh, the importance of silence and the unworded aspect of our unconsciousness. So I thought out of respect for that and as an entry into this territory of, of being and existing and experience and the mystery and majesty really of consciousness, we could take a breath or two in silence here together and use that actually as what we'll be doing a lot tonight as a kind of inner experiment going back and forth between what we're talking about and the fundamentally wordless profundity of our own experiences here. So. Maybe a breath or so in silence. 
Thank you. All right. Nice. Okay. So, mind. Yes. What the heck? What is it? <laughs> so, first of all, what are we talking about here? You know, you mm. say to begin with, in terms of a description of mind, that it has these three features or attributes, um, experience itself, awareness, maybe a self, and then third, unconscious information processing. Can mm. you like say a little more about that? And then we'll get into the definition of mind, yeah. which, which is where you really start doing your fireworks. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, first of all, thanks, Rick, for, for being here. It's really, really great to be here with you. And thank you all for coming out. Yeah. We can kind of see you there. Hi. Um, can everybody wave so we can see that there are actually people there? There we go. Oh, my God. That is awesome. All these Fantastic. minds. Up and down. Fantastic. Maybe just one mind yeah. with many waving. So, so it's, it's such an interesting question, you know, because um, the word mind, M-I-N-D, is just a word. And as you beautifully started us off, you know, there's this silence without words, and you have experience before you translate it into linguistic symbols. So on some level, we can say, well, we have something, which is called something, that relates to the feeling of being alive, and then the awareness of that feeling of being alive, and then how we connect with each other, you and I right here, or with all of us together here. And I mean, even if we try to see everybody, does anyone here feel like they have a mind? Let's just see. If you have a mind, raise your hand so we can see. Only, only half of the people are raising their hand. That's so interesting. <laughs> Some people we have two hands, you know? <laughs> that's right. They're of two, two minds. Hands. That's right, of two minds about that. That's good. So, so uh, before we even get to the word, it's like, what do you do with the idea that you have a subjective sense of being alive? Right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, some people call that subjectivity or subjective experience. And let's, let's assume for a moment that that is real, because the word subjective in the way we use it often says, well, it's not really real, it's subjective. And yeah. when I was in medical school, what happened was that the professors that were teaching me to become a physician were acting like the human beings they were diagnosing had no subjective experience. They had bodies, which were objective. Yeah. And if they told them they were dying, they would take no time to ask them what that meant in their life or what it felt like in their life or what they were thinking about it, right? So thinking and feeling and meaning, mm. the stories of our lives, got registered into some other realm than what these professors who were good at yeah. diagnosing objective illness. So I dropped out of school, and the word mind then um, became really important because I had to decide whether to go back to become a physician or not. And uh, it was when John Lennon was killed that, that year, and the story of the person who assassinated him was that he believed he himself was John Lennon. And his mental experience of that identity, which related to mind, uh, you know, made it so that he killed the real John Lennon, who he thought was an imposter. So it made me feel like, wow, you know, the mind, in terms of what you believe, has a really huge impact on one's own life and other people's lives. So when I went back to school, I made up this word mindsight, just to say that at least the word mind could refer to the subjective feeling of, of your sense of being alive, of your thoughts, the meaning of things, what you believed about the self. So 
for me, back in 1980, um, 1981, that period of time, the word mind for my own personal journey was at least a word that meant subjective experience. So that's a place to begin. You know. What is it then? What is the mind? Yeah. If, you, if we're having mind here, there's some, as you said, sight of mind inside yeah. and also between. Yeah. And as also, in a sense, in the other, what is this mind that's in us, between us? Yeah. What well, exactly. Mean? Well, yeah. when I started in pediatrics, I noticed that the, the families that had mind sight, even if the child had a terrible illness, as a family, they did better. And when I switched over to psychiatry, I, I found I could teach my um, fellow travelers what a lot of people call patients, but I always saw them as kind of colleagues in this journey of life. You know, we could help each other see what our subjective experience was like. Right. You know. How did it yeah. affect them for their mind, their feelings, their inner world, their, their interiority yeah. to be recognized yeah. in that way by you? Well, the first patient I ever had was a, a doctoral student in, in a biological field. And um, when she got better and was ready to go off for her postdoc, um, I had no idea why she got better, because I wasn't doing what my supervisors were telling me to do, because so, it didn't make sense to me what they were saying. Um, and so we, you I said- You were in Harvard Medical School No, at the this time, was at right? UCLA. This oh, was okay. UCLA when I was in training in psychiatry. Okay. And uh, so I said to her, um, you know, at UCLA, we have an exit interview to discuss what happened. She goes, oh, that's such a great idea. And I was making it up. So I said, yeah, it's a great idea they have here at UCLA. And she, so I said, so we talk about what were the factors that helped you get better? She goes, well, that's obvious. And I said, yeah, I know it's obvious. But, you know, if you had to put words to it, um, what would you say about it? And she said the most amazing thing. I can just see her right now. And I'd like to name her, but I'm not allowed to. Um, but she said, um, she said, never before in my life I, did I have the experience of feeling felt like I have with you. And it was that betweenness where there was what she brought to the table in terms of what was happening now, what happened before, what could happen in the future, this mental time travel that Endel Tolvin talks about, and this feeling inside of me that I felt her, even now I can feel her all these decades later. And it was that joining as a we that really gave me the sense that the mind may not be just what we were told, or since the time of Hippocrates, that the mind is just from your head. There was this betweenness. And when I, after that, ultimately became an attachment researcher and studied families, you could feel the sense of feeling felt that existed in families or didn't. And the outcome of a child would be profoundly different depending on that that mm. between of the mind. But no one was really talking about it, so I was confused. You know? Yeah. Well, one of the great things on your journey is that you developed a real definition of mind. And it yeah. has these qualities of information and energy. I'm kind of yeah. setting you up here to, yes. if you could, Good. talk about Good. that for Good. us. Yes, I feel well, very <laughs> felt by you, Rick. Good. Yeah. Well, you are the master of feeling. Good. <laughs> so, well, that's good. I'll take it. That's really yeah, good. you guys ought to try coming sitting up here. It's great to sit with Rick. Yes, well, yes. Go ahead. Yes. Okay. Mind. Like, what is this thing? You have this great yeah. definition. Well, of energy, course, information, yeah. enzymes, and emotion. Good stuff. Yeah. So, gosh, you know, one thing is the subjective quality that she was describing with feeling felt that you can find in families. That's a, yeah. the basis of secure attachment. 
you're aware of that through consciousness and there's information processing within consciousness or even outside of consciousness, yeah. as you mentioned. But the thing that happened to me was, you know, I was a clinician, you know, during the day and uh, a researcher during the day. And then at home, I was a father and a husband and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and I was trying to put all this stuff together. And as a scientist, when I became the training director in child and adolescent yeah. psychiatry, I, I had all these scientists together to, it was the beginning of the decade of the brain, to ask the one question, what is the connection between the brain and the mind? Yeah. And they could all say what the brain was, you know, 100 billion neurons, all these connections, a fabulously complex organ of the body, beautiful, fantastic, learning more about it. Um, but no one agreed on what the mind was, short of saying it was brain activity, which made anthropologists in the room really agitated. And so Did I had help them? I, well, did you I get did. them in your card? Or I tried to oh, okay. because the, that week I was asking myself the question for the next meeting, the second meeting, what definition of the mind might be offered to these 40 scientists mm -hmm. that might allow them to find some universal commonality where they could speak to each other with respect at least mm -hmm. and maybe even collaborate. Yeah. So it's a long story, but the, the bottom line is it seemed to me that an anthropologist studying culture and a neuroscientist studying brain firing patterns were studying the same process in two different ways. And the process of an anthropologist was to study energy and information flow sharing within culture that's passed across generations. And a neuroscientist was studying energy and information flow as it happens in the circuitry of the brain and the head, and of course influences the whole body. So it's this embodied brain. So if, if the brain was the embodied mechanism of energy and information flow, and culture or family relationships were the sharing of energy and information flow, then the common ground was energy and information flow, flow being change, information meaning a pattern of energy with symbolic value, energy having the variations of sound and light and touch and all the ways, that, for example, electrochemical energy, there's different forms of it. So I thought that the system, from a mathematical point of view, had the qualities of what's called a complex system, meaning it's open, capable of being chaotic, and nonlinear, meaning small inputs lead to large and unpredictable results. So as a complex system, like a cloud, for example, if the mind were either the complex system or a property of the complex system, wasn't clear to me then, but at least one property of that system is called emergence. Things arise naturally. Yeah. And one of those emergent properties is called self-organization. And I came to the group the next week and said, what if we consider as a working definition mm -hmm. that beyond subjective experience, consciousness, and information processing, put those aside, those yeah. three facets, there's a fourth facet of mind that instead of just describing their qualities, let's define it as the emergent, self-organizing, so that's from a complex system that's straight out of math, mm -hmm. where is it embodied and relational, mm -hmm. so all those other things like consciousness and subjective, subjective experience, maybe those are just in your head, maybe, who knows, but this fourth facet of mind, by its definition, is not located in the skull, it's the whole body, and it's not limited by skull or skin. It's also the between, yeah. 
as a self-organizing emergent process. It's embodied and relational. What is it doing? It's regulating energy and information. So every one of the 40 scientists, I couldn't believe it, that second meeting, said yes, 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 40 yeses, which if you, you know, in academics, that's like, you can't get people to agree on what to eat for dinner. So this was like wild. And the group went on to meet for four and a half years at, with a lot of collaboration. And the thing that was amazing about that definition is it allows you to say, if that's what at least one facet of the mind is, what is a healthy mind? And you could say, how do you optimize self-organization? So the prediction back from 1992 was that the mathematics of complex systems said that optimal self-organization comes from differentiating and linking, and that we can call integration. So when you integrate energy and information flow in your brain, for example, or in your relationships, or in the larger culture, you create flexible, adaptive, coherent, meaning resilient over time, energized and stable movement of that system. Mm -hmm. So then I thought that was like the most amazing definition of mental health I'd ever seen. Mm -hmm. It was actually the only definition of health I'd ever seen um, because I, I was a physician and we only dealt with disorders. And so, <laughs> so this, this, was a, this was the prediction from 1992 yeah. that integration yeah. was health and a, a healthy mind was a mind that created integration within you, in your whole body and its nervous system, yeah. and between you and other people and the planet. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Yay! That, that was the weird so, guess. So you have two children, and yes. reflecting on my own two children, and when babies first come in, hmm. I wondered what, what effect did it have on you? to have this recognition of the emergence of mind, the activity of mind, and integration yeah. or not integration in your very young children. Boy, I wish I, wish I could bring them up here now. They're in their 20s, and they could answer, and I could leave the room. Because oh, no, what <laughs> like whatever I say won't be probably the truth. <laughs> did, when, you, hmm. when your children were first born, yeah. I'm thinking back on when our kids were first born, did you recognize, if you will, being over there, mind over there? Yeah, God, that's so interesting. You know, when our son was born, I was um, just beginning my attachment research fellowship. And uh, through, I got a grant from the National Institute of Mental Health. I'd finished my child and adolescent training. I was board certified as an adult psychiatrist. I was just training, uh, getting ready to do my boards in child psychiatry. And, um, you know, as I say in this book, Parenting from the Inside Out, um, I would sometimes flip my lid and act in really irrational, weird, not very helpful ways. Mm -hmm. And um, I had to do some deep, painful, you know, inner searches mm -hmm. to try to discover what was not integrated in my own memory systems. And I was trained in this thing called the adult attachment interview, which Mary Main across here in the Bay at Berkeley had created, and she was my teacher. So it was a very strange and humbling time because here I was board certified in all these things and training in the research and all these things, and I was like screwing up as a parent. So, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I had to, first of all, I had to learn the importance of repair, and there is no such thing as perfect parenting. But in the search, I had to find unintegrated pieces of experience um, that I talk about in the, in, in the Inside Out book with Mary Hartzell, you know, that painfully um, 
I could not just become aware of, but actually, in the term making sense, literally sense it in my body yeah. and the shame of it and all these things that happened. So, um, and then things really changed, you know, a lot until our son became an adolescent, but, but, they, but that's a whole other story. But then those years, so really I, I noticed a real difference in the feeling, and, but it was really by being kind to myself but recognizing that you know, connection is really important, but repairing the ruptures that Ed Tronic has beautifully written about that were often in either benign kind of ruptures or toxic ruptures, the ones I was writing about, you know, and making a repair of those ruptures is just so, so crucial for well-being of a child's development. In a moment, I want to ask you about how you see those ruptures between people as issues of integration. Yeah. But before going there, I wonder if you could talk more about how you did it. And you've spoken about mindfulness as being very useful, yeah. mind sight internally and externally directed. Yeah. How did that actually, if you're willing to be as candid as you're comfortable in being, mm. um, how did that, how did you engage mindfulness yourself? to help you differentiate and integrate yeah. inside yourself for, um, um, to help you, among other things, become a better parent. Yeah. Well, the strange thing is, I didn't know there was this thing called mindfulness until like about 15 years later. So uh, I, I, that term was something Mary Hartzell and I used in our book to mean be conscientious and... Um, mindfulness. Mindfulness as yeah. a term. Yeah. Um, I had used the term mindsight, so I tried to use that, which meant insight, empathy, and integration is, is what yeah. that meant. So, so back then, I, I think what I would try to do is um, you know, do journal writing, and I, I was already working on you know, this very painful um, experience that we all had with veterans coming back. Mm -hmm. it, you know, it, was, it was from Vietnam, then it was um, uh, the immersion in PTSD that made me realize I had some form of unresolved mm. traumatic experience from actually being an intern in pediatrics, mm. of all things. And, and um, you know, I think the, the integration piece is what you, I think, talk about beautifully in your work, Rick, about really trying to embrace the good and, you know, really build the good into ourselves but also recognize the, the mind has a tendency to, to grasp onto the bad because that's what's gonna protect us. Yeah. And I think um, when I was a pediatric intern, there were um, things you have to do as a house officer in pediatrics that are very painful to talk about. Mm -hmm. But you know, the kids where we were working at UCLA were extremely ill and you had to, um, you know, you had to get sterile um, blood samples from them to make sure that you could detect the bacteria accurately that were giving them the horrible fever that was about to kill them. So these kids didn't want to cooperate. And as teams of interns, at three in the morning, you'd be called out of a deep sleep to um, take your sharp objects mm -hmm. and obtain this sterile blood sample. And day after day after day of sleepless nights. Um, we had to do this. And that and really wore on you. What's that? That wore on you. It just totally wore on me, and I think there was a way we used to, as interns, we used to just literally whistle our way down the hallways as if this was like fun, you know, because we not had to do it. Not integrating it. It was not integrated, exactly. Yeah. And so when my son, our son, was born, 
not the son you and I had, but my wife and I had. It's always weird, it's not really mine, it's ours, but maybe we did. We're coming out, Rick, to about this stuff. So, San Francisco, you know. It's good, it's all good. So, um, so when our son was born, you know, um, I had never been around a crying baby before. And, um, you know, the experience of trying to calm him when he was upset and then it not working right away and then maybe me sensing something agitating about his crying and then his sensing my agitation got him to cry more and there was like a turning point where I would go from really trying to figure it out to actually entering this kind of altered state which I would call like flipping your lid if you have your hand model of the brain you flip it so I would just like I'd never seen myself act like that before and and it would always be in the setting of being ultimately I figured this part out of feeling incompetent to really soothe the person I cared about more than anyone in the world and one day uh, my father-in-law was visiting we were driving a car and I just was in the back seat with our son and um, he started crying and I couldn't soothe him and I just felt this incredible set of images in me which were horrible images of stabbing a kid and it was really freaky, yeah. really freaky. Turbocharged uh, by your background as a pediatric well, intern. That was, that, was yeah. the, that was the stabbing. Yeah. yeah. So when I let myself close my eyes and not see what was around me, it was being back as a pediatric intern, mm. which is the experience we had to dissociate of getting these blood samples and that helped a lot reduce this flipping of the lid thing, but it didn't Your take- insight into it. Your the insight into it was helpful, maybe let's yeah. say halfway, yeah. but it didn't do the whole thing. Yeah. So then I went for long walks with myself, talked to friends, wrote in journals, and the unintegrated piece besides that was something I hate talking about, but in case there are any physicians in the room, when I share this with physicians, the resonance is incredible, because apparently it's a common experience. But when you feel so incompetent in a medical school, you're only trained to save people. Yeah. When someone is ill and you can't help them, it makes you feel so powerless yeah. that you hate your own powerlessness. But you can't function by hating yourself all the time. So you look around to people who are powerless and project your anger onto them. And those are the children and their families. Mm -hmm. And then you're walking around in these white coats with sharp objects project your anger onto them. I can't tell you how many physicians contact me after I say this publicly or when I've written yeah. about it in a book. And so what happened with me to integrate that piece was to realize I had been projecting anger on these helpless families and their children and to then understand why that happened, to let that part of me of feeling incompetent, of unable, to, you know, powerlessness to be really understood, to own the shame of that response, which since I've spoken to my fellow interns, was not, I was not alone in that. But then with my child, my son, when he would get agitated, instead of flipping out, I would say to myself, your sense of helplessness is making you get ready to flip out, and it's okay. Just stay present is the word I would have used since I didn't know the word mindfulness. Just stay, stay present with this, accept what is, be open to what is inside yourself, inside of him. And things changed dramatically. I mean, until adolescence, as I mentioned. But because uh, then it was a whole other set of things I had to work through about my own adolescent period. But I, I didn't know we were going to get into this stuff, but I hope it's okay to share it with you. 
Yeah, you're asking me about it. He's tricky. <laughs> yeah. So, so the mind there, you know. Yeah. Look, the, the, when I when I teach at medical schools now, I'm very open about this for physicians, and I say, you know, we were maybe other clinicians too. We're not given the tools to be open to our own layers of various experiences. And we're just, we're living on the object site view, the physical site view, yeah. and no one teaches us mind sight. So mm -hmm. mind sight is essential in medicine yeah. to have insight into yourself, to have empathy for your patients. And now I understand why my professors mm -hmm. wouldn't identify the feelings of their patients because they weren't identifying the unworked through feelings in themselves. Yeah. You know, it's this whole terrible, vicious cycle. And then they teach the next generation of physicians to be just like them. Yeah. As one of my professors said to me when, I was crying when my first patient died as a third year student. Mm. And I had to step away from rounds to be with his, his, um, his body, with my resident. And that afternoon, I'll never forget this, the attending, I had a meeting with the attending to go over my progress, you know. And he goes, you know, you're, you're doing very well, but you know, you stepped out of teaching rounds. I said, yeah, you know, um, my resident came in and told me Mr. Jones had died, and so he went to be by his body. He goes, you're a student. You're here to learn, not to take time to do something like that. And I was like crying. And he goes, there's no time for tears if you're going to be a doctor. Yeah. And I just looked at him, and I thought, oh, my God. You know, so, so then what I did was I decided, okay, 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 like I'm going to be a good student. I just cut myself off from mindsight totally. Not my, integrated. Not integrated, I became unintegrated. My next patient was one of my favorite teachers who had developed leukemia. Mm. And I was supposed to take care of him in his bone marrow transplant. Mm. And I thought, oh my God. And so I took care of him, I read all the research you need to do, I presented the case, I got the labs, I did an excellent, in quotes, job. I felt completely dead inside, and my teacher meets with me after and goes, you get an excellent. That was the grade, you know? Mm. And I thought, well, you failed. It was a horrible experience. Yeah. So, so for me, the mind is subjective experience. And the integrated part, in terms of staying integrated, is a, it's not like a, a, a destination you finally reach. It's a direction you intentionally take on. Mm. So you're always moving in this fluid movement of harmony when you're integrated, <laughs> chaos or rigidity when you're not. And you know, when I think about the different goof-ups I've had with my kids, I was either too rigid or chaotic, you know? Um, and we're always on this journey of In terms of, of systems, going from one guardrail to the other, chaos to rigidity, yeah. back and forth. Exactly, like Instead a river. sweet spot. Yeah, like a river. The river is the flow of integration that's flowing in harmony, but you can get stuck on a bank of rigidity or the other bank is chaos. And that's predicted by math of complex systems. And the weird thing was, flashing forward, all psychiatric disorders can be reinterpreted as being symptoms of syndromes of chaos or rigidity, and flashing forward even more, every study that's ever been done on the brain of people with psychiatric disorders, every study, mm. without exception, shows the brain becomes more integrated. Mm. And then the International Human Connectome Project in October 2015 came out with a, 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 a study that showed when, we look at, when they looked at every measure of well-being. Mm. The best predictor was how interconnected the connectome is, which means how the differentiated areas of the brain are linked. So one of our online students called us up 
to tell us about this amazing study that just came out, we hadn't seen it yet, mm -hmm. because there then, 24 years later, was the data that shows health seems to be associated with neural integration, unhealth with impairments to integration. It's amazing. This is just great stuff, and I so appreciate your willingness to get personal. And one of the things that I've, um, and so many other people, you may not know this, you might know it, I think you've probably had more influence on the broad field of mental health and parenting than anyone else probably in the last mm. 10 or 20 years. Good influence. And um, so as part of that, you move back and forth so well uh, from the personal and the interpersonal, interpersonal, intrapersonal, within and between and so forth. And in your example here, you're speaking to how um, system integration, like in a medical system or a hospital mm -hmm. system, uh, dis or disintegration can lead to non-integration in individuals. And also how as individuals become more integrated personally, they can help create more of an integrative healthy field mm -hmm. in relationships, parent-child, in couples and families, and in larger scale organizations. Yeah. So to me, that's been one of your great contributions is to connect those levels back and forth with each other. Well, that's beautiful. First of all, thank you for your beautiful statement. Oh. Um, it's, um, thank you, thank you. Um, The systems level is so interesting because, of course, you know, you trained as in psychology and I trained in psychiatry. And just when you look at what Hippocrates said in 2,500 years ago, yeah. the mind is only from the activity of the brain. William James in 1890 in the Principles of Psychology reaffirmed that. So it's not new to think that way, actually. It's mm. extremely old. It shapes science, it shapes clinical work, it shapes mm. society, modern mm. Western society, anyway, or mm. modern society. Yeah. So thinking like the phrase you just used, this field that exists between, is not the usual way we think. Now, in the 1800s, Michael Faraday, you know, uh, talked about electromagnetic fields and people thought he was nuts, mm -hmm. right? And now all these gadgets, electronic gadgets we have are based on Faraday's electromagnetic fields. Mm -hmm. You can't see them with your eye, but they're real. Yeah. So then the question is, if the mind, this is a big if, because this could be totally wrong, but if, 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 100 if, ifs, if the mind is an emergent property of energy flow, where one component of energy flow would be symbolic patterns we call information. Mm -hmm. So energy and information would be your unit. It changes, that's called flow. So if, mm -hmm. as complex systems mm -hmm. predict mm -hmm. their emergent properties, yeah. so if the mind is an emergent property. Certainly self-organization is predicted by that math, and that would explain why every measure of health is related to integration, because that's just a math statement mm -hmm. that we're just extending to our, our, our lives. Mm -hmm. Maybe subjective experience and consciousness are also emergent properties. So then, and you know, I discuss mm -hmm. this in the book, then it becomes a really interesting set of questions like, who are we? Or where mm -hmm. is the mind? Mm -hmm. Like, is yeah. the mind in the room? Is yeah. the mind in society? Yeah. Is the mind between you and mm -hmm. me right now? Is the mind only in your body? Or is the mind only in your head, as we've been told for 2,500 years? Mm -hmm. So what was so both challenging and exciting and makes me feel very nervous about this book is the book just places... It, it places these questions uh -huh. 
as, as an invitation for the reader to say, like, for example, where is the mind? Yeah. You know, and I guess as an attachment researcher and a therapist, mm -hmm. uh, it just, the feeling of it was very clear. The mind was as much between and within. And so when you think about energy flow, mm -hmm. and it's energy information flow, it's the full phrase, skull does not become a fixed yeah. boundary. Skin does not become a fixed boundary. So just like Michael Faraday's um, yeah. electromagnetic fields that can go right through these walls, isn't it possible that in fact there is something we don't see with our eyes, but that actually exists between us? And the reason this becomes really important is more than just an intellectual discussion, is I feel that we're raising children in modern society to identify with who their self is as the body. Mm -hmm. And so the self comes as a separate package rather than part of the self is in the body, including its brain, mm -hmm. and part of the self comes from the betweenness of your connection with other people and the planet. And so then the planet becomes an extension of your identity. Right. You know? So this is what what for me, yeah. the deepest hope for this book is yeah. that, and I'm gonna say this maybe in too strong a way, but that we look at the presumption that the mind, which some, many people would say is the origin of the self, is only from your head, but rather it's a fully embodied and fully relational process, which would allow the next generation to fall in love with other people and fall in love with the planet yeah. so that we start treating each other with the kindness and compassion, each other meaning other people yeah. and the planet, yeah. with the kind of tender care that we desperately need on this planet. Yeah. So that's, that's my So own. beautifully true. Right? Thank you. So if you and I sitting here, and us here as well, uh, if there's a kind of local expression of some global mind process. Yeah. You speak of mind as a verb, not a noun. Yeah. It's process, yeah. not a thing. Yeah. Um, so, and I'm assuming that you would, by extension, include mice, cats, certainly, maybe mosquitoes, as having mind in some sense. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's a very interesting thing. It depends on how you use mind, but I would say absolutely. If we're talking about... Um, Energy and information as a field, yeah. local way, patternings of that yeah. field. Yeah. yeah, I mean, absolutely. That yeah. it, it, In my mind, I'm really thinking about um, debates about do we stick consciousness in every entity in, on the planet? And so I want, to, I, I want to be clear that we can tease apart uh, different layers of different facets of mental experience. Mm -hmm. So yeah. is there energy and information flow yeah. that happens in everything you just mentioned? Absolutely. Yeah. And even in plants. Mm -hmm. And so um, if you take, for example, bacteria, if you look at the research that's come out in the last two and three years, mm -hmm and uh, some of it was just emailed to me from someone in the audience, and I just met with Emeryn Mayer, who wrote a beautiful book called The Mind-Gut Connection, mm. and we spent all our time talking about this. Um, Emeryn talks about you know, this idea of biome-speak, the way these, the energy and information is flowing among these bacteria. Mm. And research is really clear. 
the bacteria that inhabit your gastrointestinal system will help prevent neurological disease or cause neurological diseases in ways, I mean, you can read the book and just see the details, but that are absolutely mind-blowing. So in this sense, yes, if we're looking at, if we just talk about energy and information flow and see the mind as an emergent property of it, we have a certain way we live with society and with our bodies, including their brains, that may have a certain complexity to that, whereas a bacteria will have a different kind of complexity Mm -hmm. to it. And if you look at um, Giulio Tononi's integrated information theory, Mm -hmm. it beautifully talks about how the level of complexity will determine the level of consciousness in a way. So I think we just have to realize energy information may be flowing, but it can achieve different degrees of complexity depending on what system, aspect of the system you're talking about. Yeah, Yeah. I I think our cat was having experiences, like a squirrel's having experiences. I don't know about little tiny worms with 302 neurons, you know, a millimeter long, right? But maybe they're zombies, okay? But maybe not, you know. um, So from that perspective then, with another person, let's say, bringing it kind of concretely now. Um, With another person, let's say you're having a wrangle with another person Mm -hmm. or some kind of issue. Yep. How would it be helpful for each of the two people in that wrangle, conflict, issue, what have you, to look at what was happening through the lens of how you uh, view mind? (laughs) Yes. and the mind process. How right. would it be useful for them individually, and how might it alter, how might they draw upon yeah. that understanding in how they deal with each other? Beautiful. Yeah, great. Um, and a concrete example involving your wife or children would be just fine, but yeah. not necessary. <laughs> I was thinking one with my wife uh, earlier yeah, today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let, let, let me just um, start with uh, a... a, a, a general uh, statement of appreciation because it's a very clear question, very practical, and I know we're moving to the practical zone, and it's wonderful to be here with you, Rick, and and talking about these things. Um, So what I want to say is first the conceptual um, lessons that making a definition of the mind as a self-organizing, emergent, embodying relational process do for this person you're in a wrangle with and why it makes a difference. So for me, as a human being living in this body for this period, by the way, as you know, because you read the book, you know, the issue of time is absolutely fascinating, right? Yeah. And, and since I was an 11-year-old, I always was puzzled why part of my subjective experience was very time-bound, and I worried about dying, and the yeah. body was getting older, and all this stuff. Yeah. And another part of my experience was timeless. Yeah. So in the book, it kind of reveals a possible way. Have any of you had that experience, by the way? Where, raise your hand if you have. Oh, wow, okay, great. So, so in the book, it kind of shows how looking at energy and information flow gives you these two ways in which there's something called an arrow-free microstate condition, and there's an arrow-bound one, and, the, and your arrow mental of time. And an arrow of time, even though time may not exist, the phrase arrow of time means kind of arrow of change, directionality of change. That would be a thing we can talk about, another thing, but that's not about the wrangling. So in terms of the wrangling, what would happen inside of me was to realize, number one, integration in this beautiful way is profoundly simple, and it basically says you need to maintain differentiation and create linkage, so it's not the same as blending. It's not the same as homogenization. It's not the same as a smoothie. It's more like a fruit salad, right? So you have this 
maintenance of differences. So it's where the phrase comes from, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Because integration, the way we're using it, is not addition. So with my, what do we want to say, my neighbor, just to come up with a, yeah. a general example, not that I've ever had a problem with a neighbor, um, uh, you know, the, um, the, the first step is to honor differences. And, and, and not take on the stance that, that this neighbor is supposed to have my same point of view or have my same values at, at work or my same goals in mind. So to differentiate yep. and say, here's where I'm at, these are my experiences. If I have unintegrated things like, I was okay, I shared that example. I realized that that was a pretty heavy thing to do, but the pediatrics. Yeah. But to, to look at my own unworked through things in interacting with this yeah. person I'm having a wrangle with, so really be centered in myself to have presence requires we have this wheel of awareness practice which kind of has the knowing or awarenessing of consciousness in this hub and on the rim you have all the things that you can have as knowns. So I want to be able to sit in the hub of my wheel of awareness and be able to integrate anything there and say bring it on. So with the wrangle I would say you know what's going on inside of me and differentiate within my own experience and then say I wonder what's happening with this person I'm in a wrangle with you know, whether it's a relative or a neighbor, whoever it is. And then in taking their perspective, right, I'm honoring their subjective experience. I may not share it, I may not actually believe it, I may not even like it, but I need to try to understand it. So what, from a self-organizing point of view of the mind, is I can participate in this friction with this person by tuning in to their subjective experience mm -hmm. so that even if they're holding a place of hostility toward me, this act of opening to their subjective experience is actually a, a state of joining. So the level of complexity of our before wrangling system is elevated because we are joining, mm. even though they may not want to do that. But With I'm doing that because I'm- and acceptance of differences. Exactly, and really trying to tune into what's- Increasing complexity, thus basis for consciousness. Exactly, exactly. So now, yes, I can have my feelings, their feelings, but you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a way where you take the concept of integration as differentiation and linkage. So now I'm linking. So when now we interact about whatever the issue would be, a dog doing this, a garbage can, a fence, whatever, never had those problems before, but um, uh, you know, I can say, I understand your point of view, and here's our point of view, and uh, you know, here we are, nodes in a larger system yeah. that are, are understanding their point of view. Now, of course, I'm gonna own my own reactions of frustration or sadness or disappointment or anger, whatever comes up, but I can still rise above those emotional responses with integration as a larger frame of differentiating linking. And what I found since the early 90s with this becoming clear from a science point of view was on a pract very practical level, integration guided me home every time. Mm. whether it was in, in conflict with someone mm. or in thinking about ethical questions of how to make decisions or looking at different mm. issues about politics or yeah. climate change issues. What's been absolutely amazing, even though it's incredibly simple, differentiate and link, how much more complicated could that be? And people get mixed up with complexity theory thinking it's complicated, but actually complexity theory is super simple. Mm -hmm. It's remarkable. And so 
this for me over these years has been very helpful. And I guess the last thing I would say about your question about the practical side of that is, um, you know, one of the human challenges we have is, you know, facing our awareness of our own mortality. And uh, there's all sorts of things to say about it, but from my own experience of that, with my father passing away recently and um, really wrestling with some of these ideas mm -hmm. about uh, timelessness and about mm -hmm. the idea that energy is really the movement from potentiality to actuality is how quantum physicists talk about it. And so I've been trying to weave in my own personal life and also professionally trying to understand it, what that view of energy really means if the mind is an emergent property of that. So when my father was dying and he didn't know uh, how to approach his death, mm -hmm. um, I wasn't sure exactly what to say to him as a mechanical engineer, but sitting with him and exploring the idea that mm -hmm. we come from a sea of potential before the sperm and egg get together. Out of the sea of possibilities, we get this body. And then we have this 100-year period, you know, pretty much at most, to experience life as the potentialities that turn into the actuality of this <coughs> node of the much larger system, right? And then we experience whatever that is, and then you melt down back into the sea of potential, like that. And I said, Dad, you know, no one has ever come to me as a patient saying, oh my God, I'm freaking out about where I was before I was conceived, you know? And he kind of looked like, what? And I said, what if you go back to exactly where that place was? He goes, where's that? I said, the sea of potential, the generator of diversity, you know? And he really, he said, that makes me feel very peaceful. And so for my own personal journey in this body, you know, there's been something kind of, I don't know, you, you talked about being a mystic, and I think about my friend John O'Donohue, who passed away a, a, quite a bit of time ago now, and John used to define being a mystic, because he defined himself as that, as someone who believed in the invisible, who believed in what the eye cannot see. And so in many ways, I feel like we're at a turning point in cultural evolution as a human family, yeah. where, you know, if you really see the self as actually the larger system hmm. that extends across what we call time, but it's actually a mental construction time is in lots of ways. And when you actually see across that, then you go, wow, then we've confused the node, the body we're in, which allows energy information to pass through it and be shared with other nodes. We've confused the self with the node, and we call that me or I, and yeah. it's separate. But what if the self is really the system? Yeah. Then you get this incredible joy yeah. and peacefulness, this energy. When we do the wheel of awareness, people can get it really fast. But in general, what if you live life where your, your way of living was about empathic joy, where you see another person's joy, another person's success, and you feel incredibly energized by their doing well. Can you imagine if we replaced the greed and competition that exists in modern society 
with an emphasis on collaboration and connection and empathic joy. That's what's possible with our human awareness. And by defining the mind in this way, what might just happen is we begin to realize it's a me plus a we, and you integrate those and you get this we. You know, you get this way of, I, I live in a body, we have our interconnections, and then things become pretty exciting. You've spoken right here as well as earlier tonight really eloquently about this moment in history and you know, the planet, all life as a whole, um, a way that I might put it, um, you know, the kind of recognition of individual waves that they're a local expression of the ocean altogether. Yeah. And yeah. in that recognition, there can be a, an ecstatic, empathic joy. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. in this moment of history, not yeah. everyone is up for the program, if you will. There You've been reading this, the newspaper. Yeah, there is a movement <laughs> toward this beautiful recognition of interdependence that yeah. we feel mm. and all the rest of that. Yeah. And then there are people who have issues with that of various kinds, including different kinds of classic authoritarian demagogues, you know, playing on grievance and fear and anger. Yeah, and so very my, integrated people. Yeah, so my last question is, um, in a sense, there's so much we can say about it all and all the rest of that, just a Too much, few yeah. minutes or, or yeah. less even. If you could nominate a practice for people, if you could suggest something that people could do even just for a few minutes at a time or a few minutes spread out over a day that mm -hmm. could actually be helpful Mm -hmm. in helping people tolerate the changes that are occurring and the ways yeah. they need to be willing to be changed, as someone pointed out to me earlier today, being willing to be changed themselves. Um, because, for example, to tolerate the differences between you and this person you're having a wrangle with, mm -hmm. you need to be more integrated over here to yeah. be able to be okay with differences over there. Yeah. So, do you have a suggestion for us, a practice or anything you have found useful? Yeah. Or if you could just really encourage a billion people a day to do something for five minutes or so? Yeah, absolutely. No small question. Well, 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 a, well just a, a very short preamble to that is that what you're describing is such an important question. So thank you for articulating it in such a beautiful way. Um, you know. Oh, good. Thank you. The, um, there. We, as you know, you know, we can get to these reactive states of fight, flight, freeze, and faint yeah. that make us very separate from others and we're feeling threatened, right? And if we can do something, I'm gonna mention three brief things people could do, to bring yourself from reactivity to its opposite, which is receptivity. Yeah. Um, that would be a fantastic brief thing if the billions of people you're suggesting could do that. And a couple of ways of doing that, I mean, sensing the breath is super simple and cheap, and you can do that, and it can bring you from reactivity to receptivity. Even putting a hand on your chest and a hand on your belly for at least 95% of people helps bring them from reactivity to receptivity, and even just thinking of doing that transition. Having um, done maybe a more extensive practice, like we have this wheel of awareness practice when people build their access to the hub, they can very readily return to there during the day with brief just even imagining the wheel. And we've had kids in kindergarten even say, you know, I need to get to my hub because I'm about to punch Billy because he took my block, you know? And so just having that 
amazingly, having that visual metaphor of the wheel of awareness and the has been helpful. And being this place of witnessing. This, mind, this place, yeah, of, of witnessing, awarenessing, yeah. and we've had five-year-olds really get that. So yeah. if people could just get that vocabulary down to build the hub. And the final thing that I think supports what you're saying is just gratitude. Mm. You know, when you take a moment and step back, like you're in a wrangle with somebody, mm. you know, and realize what an absolutely amazing thing it is to be alive. It's just an incredible gift. Yeah. And so even if things are going bad and even if things are tough, just even having the intention of finding something to be grateful for can bring this kind of sense of clarity and stability and receptivity. And so those would be just general things, I would say. And I think each person needs to find there yeah. for them which of those things or other things I'm sure you know and other people would say, but it would generally bring you to this receptive, open spaciousness. Because studies of, for example, implicit racial bias show that mindfulness actually helps reduce that. And studies of all sorts of things, mindfulness being actually a very integrative practice, it integrates the brain, help you come to this more integrated state of receptivity. So. Fantastic, thank you. Thank you. Oh, good. Isn't he great? You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. The audio engineer for this episode was Ramdas Khalsa. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.